Do you really believe that every person, every man, every woman, and every child is made in the image and likeness of God like we heard about last week from Genesis 1? That not just those who have the same views about God as we do, or people that we especially like, but people who take the wrong sides on moral issues, difficult family members, students who aren't nice to us at school, yes, even Philadelphia sports fans, are worthy of the respect and honor society would give a king or a queen? Do you believe that? One of the most important emotions that indicates how much we regard the value and dignity of all people is what we do with our anger. Anger graffitis the image and likeness of God in us and in others. Pastor Tracy isn't feeling well today, so we're going to take a short pause in our sermon series in Genesis, and we're going to pick up with chapter 2 next week. And although this wasn't planned, today's sermon is in some ways a nice follow-up from last week because we're asking the bigger question, how should we treat people who are made in the image and likeness of God? And specifically, how do we address the problem of anger that prevents us from loving people the way that God calls us to? Anger, the devil's brew we can't put down. That's the title for today's sermon. Uh, Among the questions that John Wesley, the famous 18th century preacher and evangelist, would have his small groups ask each other was this, is there anyone whom you fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold resentment toward, or disregard? If so, what are you going to do about it? It's a question they would ask each week in their small groups. And I think what John Wesley understood is that what makes us angry, how long we are angry, and how quickly we are to reconcile, says a lot about our discipleship to Christ. You see, anger is a powerful emotion, isn't it? You can even say it's intoxicating. Like alcohol, it alters body chemistry and it leaves a lasting mark on our character. Anger can burn through our longest relationships and through our most cherished friendships. To be on the receiving end of anger, to absorb someone's anger, can create an an irrevocable distance between us and them moving forward. You see, just being in the presence of someone who's angry makes a lasting impression, doesn't it? Anger is so powerful that it makes the most controlled and wise people turn red-faced and blind to reason, a complete shadow of who they were just moments earlier. It alters people so quickly and leaves a wake of damage behind. Now, how anger alters people differs from person to person. For some, while they are angry, they yell, they use force, or they intimidate. That's the effect on more aggressive types. For those who are more passive, they spend a lot of time playing out revenge scenarios in their minds, or maybe use the silent treatment as a weapon. But I think most of us, if we're honest, we do find 
both ways. We roll our eyes and we make the cutting comment. We shake our heads and then there's the judgment in our minds of others. For this reason, anger can be like an addiction. From the moment it makes us feel so empowered and in control, but soon we find ourselves picking up the broken pieces all around us because of our anger. Have you ever thought, why is anger so difficult to put down? Why is it that we can't, for instance, read ourselves out of this problem, practice enough breathing techniques to alleviate that, take medication to be rid of it, learn enough techniques to handle it? Why is that? Now, all those things can be helpful for sure, but the reason those things don't rid anger is because anger is a deeply spiritual issue. Anger is a deeply spiritual issue. According to the New Testament, every display of sinful anger is tagged by the evil one. Listen to how the New Testament puts this together. Paul in Ephesians 4 says this, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Peter puts it this way, be alert and sober-minded, meaning be self-controlled and measured. Why? Because the devil roams like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How does the devil devour people? When they lose their sober-mindedness and they give in to their passions, anger is one of those passions. And just like the apostles, Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount, we commit murder when we are angry with our brother or sister. And Jesus tells us in John that the evil one is a murderer from the beginning. So you see, anger and the demonic influence go hand in hand in the Bible. It's a deeply spiritual issue. And that's the same train of thought that James picks up on in this passage this morning we're looking at. He explains that when we move away from wrathful fights, we are resisting the devil. All throughout the New Testament, anger is one of the devil's strongest brews, and it corrupts the image of God in us, and it defaces the image of God in others. So now let's look with James about how we are to learn how to put down the brew of anger and instead to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The first thing we're going to look at is anger's desire. Then we're going to look at anger's destruction. And thirdly, we're going to look at anger's deliverance. So first, anger's desire. What is anger's desire? In other words, what does anger want? Back in James chapter 1, verse 20, James drops a very powerful statement. He says, anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Here we get a clue about what anger is really about for us as humans. The word righteousness is a law term. When a person lives righteously, they live in harmony with God's law. So, when, so when, what happens when we get angry? Well, our sense of anger emerges when there has been a wrong, right? When we sense that there has been an injustice towards us. So a couple of very basic examples. If you have a sibling 
and you discover that they take something that belongs to you, you get very upset, become angry. Or in the workplace, someone says something negatively about you, you say, that's not fair, and you respond harshly. What is that anger about? It has to do with doing the math, right? We're trying to right the scales of justice. The wrong needs to be righted. Anger is about justice. Now, the reason anger does not produce the righteousness of God is it because it takes away the gavel from God's hand and puts it in our own. It puts us on the bench, doling out the punishments rather than leaving the matter up to God. Now, let's be clear. Scripture does, uh, maintains that anger in and of itself is not a bad emotion. Anger is not necessarily a bad emotion. Anger, we might say, is this. It's like fire. It can be used to warm us in the winter, or it can be used to destroy our neighbor's property. It's what we do with anger that matters. Paul says in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Even Jesus gets angry in the Gospels. For instance, in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus is in the synagogue teaching, there's a man who's sitting amongst the people who has a withered hand. He's deeply suffering. And Jesus asks the questions to the Pharisees and to those around him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And the Pharisees have no answers for Jesus, and they protest his question by remaining silent. And the text says, Jesus looked in anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart, and from a spirit of righteous anger, he then heals this man's hand while the Pharisee's heart remains stone cold to this man's suffering. Their apathy is what angered Jesus. Even Jesus got angry. Now, for some spiritual traditions, especially in Eastern traditions, this idea that God gets angry seems unenlightened. One Buddhist philosopher by the name of Robert Thurman remarked that the angriest person around when we look at the Bible seems to be God Himself. And that's a dig, because in his thinking, anger produces an endless cycle of retaliation and vengeance. Anger forfeits an inner peace, and it puts out into the world a blind energy that just simply causes destruction. Here's the problem with that way of thinking. Anger in the Bible is never a blind energy or force. Anger is always a moral emotion. I said it earlier, it has to do with our sense of justice. You see, at its basis, anger recognizes that a wrong has been done and it must be made right. This past week, we saw images from the Middle East of human life that is lost and a sea of people displaced. On top of the sadness, is not anger an appropriate response? When someone's life is taken away, or laws fail to protect vulnerable human life, or there's discrimination, isn't anger appropriate? You see, sometimes, like in the example of Jesus and the Pharisees, anger is the most appropriate God-honoring response. 
to go back to the fire analogy for a moment, the Bible isn't just interested in how big the fire of anger gets or how long it burns. The Bible asks the question, for what purpose did you build a fire? For what purpose were you angry? And that will tell you the moral rightness of the situation. When Jesus got angry, He healed. When we get angry, we must ask ourselves, is our anger bringing warmth and light to a situation, or is it destroying what is good? So anger desires justice, but it also reveals what we care about. Tell me what makes you angry, and I'll tell you what you really love. In fact, we may not know what we love until we get angry about it. Here's what I mean. You ever say, I don't care what people think about me? Ever say that? Ever think that? But if someone confronts us about something wrong we've done, or we aren't rewarded for our efforts, what people think about us all of a sudden matters quite a bit. Even if we say otherwise, anger reveals what was really in us the whole time. Now, in terms of the context of what James, where James is writing, to whom James is writing, he's writing a letter that is circulating to the churches all throughout the Roman Empire. And sadly, like in our churches today, the members are fighting with one another. We don't know if it's families or individuals, but we do know that they're caught up in constant quarrels. And James wants to get to the bottom of it. So he asks this question in verse 1, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? See, anger, like alcohol, is a truth serum. It reveals our passions. The word that James uses for passions here is, is derived, uh, relates to the word where we get our word for hedonism. What James is saying is that our angry quarrels and fights reveal our disordered pleasures. So you say, wait a minute, our disordered pleasures? What's wrong with wanting respect from others? Or just expecting that others would speak well of me? Or for people to love me in return for the love I give them? What's so disordered about that? If I'm made in the image of God, Isn't that what I'm owed? Well, there's nothing wrong with the desire to be respected or loved or recognized. But how do you treat others when these things are not given to you? How do you treat others when you're not getting these things? Is it to attack, speak ill, If that is our response, doesn't that reveal just how disordered our desires are? If our desires are so good and noble, then why would we pursue sin to satisfy them? And here's the lesson that James wants to teach us. What you're willing to do to get your desires met lets you know how pure those desires are. Anger is a truth serum that reveals our desires. But that's not all anger is. 
It's also a form of liquid courage. Look at what James says in verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder and covet. What kind of person are you when you don't get what you want? And what would the person sitting next to you say? What would the teachers at school say? What would your colleagues at work say? See, James has very strong words here. And while I don't think he means literally that people murder when they don't get what they want, although, of course, that does happen, we see each week people who act in rage and do commit murder, but what he's saying is our sinful nature is brought to the forefront in our anger. So in what ways do we murder? Well, we work hard to hold on to burdens of resentment rather than do all that we can to approach others in a spirit of humility and compassion. Jesus makes it very clear when we hate our brothers or sisters, we've already committed murder in our hearts. So anger, the desire for anger, is about justice. And it reveals what is most in our hearts, which oftentimes reveals we're at odds with God's character. So what's the destruction that anger creates? Let's look at that now. In verses 4 to 5, James lays this out. He mentioned earlier that some of the consequences are fights and quarrels, but James tells us that's actually just the beginning of things. We often think that the only victims to our anger are those that are on the receiving end of our anger, or maybe those who witness our anger, but that's not true. Look at verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? When we engage in sinful anger, we become enemy combatants of God. Now think how quickly that can happen. Think how quickly that comes on. It could be as simple as you're sitting at the dining room table You just shut the Bible, and all it takes is one little complaint from little lips about how bad dinner is, and it's as if the Bible wasn't open to begin with. I don't know what that's like. I feel for all of you who are going through that. How does anger destroy our relationship with God? Well, let's look at this together. If anger reveals our desires and those desires are self-interested and self-promoting, then we can either have those desires or we can have God, but we cannot have both at the same time. It can feel so right to hold on to anger, but if you hold on to it, you're going to let go of God in the process. Feels so good, feels intoxicating, feels empowering but we're grieving the Holy Spirit. Now, why does unjust anger repel God's presence? Well, here's why. If you look at how God is described earlier in James, if you take all the statements about God earlier in James, we see that God is generous. He gives to all who ask of Him. He gives every good and perfect gift from above. He doesn't change. He's entirely trustworthy. And anger is the exact opposite representation of that. Anger makes us 
ravenous to fulfill our own desires. It's about us. It's not about others. Unlike God's character, our moods change hour to hour based when we're getting what we want. That's not true of God. He remains faithful and unchanging. God is generous and open-handed, and our anger often closes us off to the world. James puts this rupture in our relationship with God in another way. He says in verse 5, do you suppose he, meaning God, yearns jealously over the spirit he has made made, uh, well in us? Here I think the spirit James is referring to is the Holy Spirit. In other words, is the Holy Spirit who lives inside you compatible with your jealous yearnings? The implied answer here is no. No. Two marks of a person filled with the Spirit in the New Testament is a person of prayer and having the fruit of the servant, uh, fruit of the Spirit. What's it like to pray when we are angry? It's very hard. Feel buried, loss of control. It's not being filled with the Spirit. What's it like to show the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Can we have those things growing in our hearts when anger is present? You see, anger damages our relationship with God because it squelches the work of the Spirit inside of us. Have you ever had a guest... But came over, and you had no idea how long they were staying, and you thought to yourself, what did I just sign up for? Maybe at this moment you can't look around, that's okay. Well, the early church father, Augustine, says this, we should be very careful to allow anger, even just anger in our hearts, because once it makes its home, it's a very difficult guest to kick out. And we don't know the effect it will have on us in the long term. We should be very careful to be angry because it destroys the image of God that is being recreated within ourselves. It harms our relationship with others and even harms our relationship with God. So how are we to be delivered from anger? That's what James gets to at the end. Um, from verses 6 through 10. I think the key in what James uh, gets at is found in verse 7 where he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is how we're going to understand how we're going to be delivered from anger. Think about for a moment this word submit and what a contrast this is with what he had said in the previous verses. Fights, quarrels, warring passions, murder, coveting. What a contrast that is. Those other words have in common our own self-interest over love for others. Submission to God, on the other hand, is an inward posture that takes our desires and says to the Lord, you shape them in the way that you see fit. In the words of the psalm, we are being still and waiting patiently for God 
to change us as He sees fit, to change those deeply rooted desires to be what they should. You know, for many of us, if you've ever had to go to physical therapy, if the physical therapist says, you need to come for the next eight weeks so that we can see some, some positive change, we wouldn't hesitate to go. But so often, we don't spend enough time with God, with these desires, and there's not enough of an opportunity for Him to change them within us. We just don't sit with God that long so that we would be changed in that way. But if we're going to want our desires to be changed, we have to submit them to the Lord. And oftentimes, it's when we pray or meditate on Scripture, we learn just how much our desires really need to be changed because they're tainted. This is how we draw near to God, and this is how He draws near to us. So let's take those desires we mentioned earlier, the desire to be loved, to be respected. When we bring them to the Lord, often what we begin to see is just how, how too much of an importance they took on. How would we know that? We tell ourselves that the reason I'm having so much trouble is because other people are not giving me what I feel that I'm due. I'm not getting the love I deserve, the respect I need, the recognition that belongs to me. And without me getting these things, I'm never going to be truly happy. So what do we do if we don't get them? We'll fight with others until they give them to us. Or we'll use our power to get our needs met. Or we'll satisfy whatever passions we might have so that we feel, so that we feel relieved. And after all, we deserve it, don't we? These are signs that our corruptions and not Christ are ruling our desires. Let me give an illustration that might further bring this home. That word submit in this passage is actually a military term. So you can imagine you have a soldier who's called to stand at attention and he listens to his superior officer. Now, at the time, the soldier might have all kinds of desires. He might be hungry, might be thirsty, he might miss his family, he might want to go home. Those are all fine desires. But in the moment, when that superior officer calls, calls him to attention, he does what the superior officer wants. And in order to be a good and happy soldier, he must do that. And the same is true in our relationship with God. We may have all kinds of desires, many of them good, but we must allow God to direct them according to His good and perfect will. Do you believe that God's desires are more important than your own? You may sit with this feeling, life should be this way, but instead it has turned out that way. Are you willing to subordinate your desires to God's commands, to fulfill His commands than your own wishes? Maybe you had a right to be angry, but it's gone on for too long and it's making a mess of your relationships. Are you willing to put those feelings and desires under the authority of God? What makes that so difficult? 
it's because we have trouble believing that when God reshapes our desires, He will never deprive us what we most need. This is where the resist the devil and he will flee from you comes in. Satan will tempt you to think, like we're going to hear in a couple weeks in the garden, like he did Adam and Eve, that if you give up your desires to God, you're going to miss out in a big way. And in fact, nothing gives Satan greater joy than for you and I to wake up each morning and to live our lives championing these desires above all else. When we do that, we become contentious Christians who lack deep peace. Why? Because our happiness is contingent on whether or not our will is fulfilled in the world rather than God's will being fulfilled. This is not easy. And James, for not, a, not for a moment does James say that it's easy because he says this, Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. It's serious work. When I would meet with patients who were coming out of detox, detoxification, they'd often describe that process of detoxification from substances as extraordinarily painful, excruciating, right? Getting clean, being made right, is a difficult process, and James is being honest, so is the work of repentance. So what's going to help us come to a place of repentance that will bring lasting change? What will help us order our desires before God? Well, as Christians, we must meditate on the cross. We must consider that our anger our individual, our communal, yes, even our anger on a global scale makes God rightly angry. Our hellish anger deserves God's perfect anger. And in Jesus' death on the cross, God's anger against sin is in full display. Think about this. Christ hates the wreckage of our anger so much that He's willing to die to remove it from us because it gets in our way with our relationship with God and to live the life He calls us to live. But it's also true that God's anger reveals His deep love because in Jesus' death, He restores our life with Him. You see, on the cross, we see anger against sin and God's love for us revealed in the same act. Never have love and anger come together so perfectly. And as a result, a beautiful relationship is restored, not wreckage. God is the only one who knows how to be rightfully angry and able to love fully. And He is able to teach us to live in the same way by the power of the Spirit because He gives us more grace. So this week, I'm not a prophet, but I know this week when you wake up Monday morning, there's going to be a myriad of things that you might encounter that might tempt you to fall under the influence of anger. 
But what God is showing us is that there is a better way. Let me show you a better way through Jesus Christ. Take these desires and hold them up under my authority. And let me do with them as I see wish. And the life that you want, what you most desire, you're not going to be deprived of because I will give you what you most need, more than what your anger could ever accomplish. And in doing that, the image of God is going to be more fully restored in us. We're going to honor the dignity of the image of God in others. And our relationship with God will be deepened and further restored. That's what God has for us when we subordinate our desires to His will. And may He give us the grace to do that this week. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you want so much for the image of your Son, Jesus, to be brought fully to life in us. And Lord, so often our anger squelches this, so we ask for your forgiveness and for a new start, because Lord, we know that all people are made in your image. And you call us to love them, and our anger gets in the way, so help us to live differently. Help us to live in accordance to your good commands, so that rather than holding on to resentment, we would instead embrace your peace and your joy that you have for us always when we turn to you in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.